Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. Adler. So our reading today comes from John chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the, who, the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews." But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Abraham Joshua Heschel in his classic, The Sabbath, said, six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity placed in the soul. The world has our hands, but our souls belong to someone else. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh day, we dominate self. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of things of space. On the Sabbath we try to become attuned to holiness in time. It is a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, and from the world of creation to the creation of the world. I don't think anyone has ever lived who understood the deep, deep meaning of Sabbath more than Abraham Joshua Heschel. And yet, as a Jew, he couldn't come to the completion that we understand in all its fullness. And, and hopefully you understand this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. In fact, he's the fulfillment of all things. 
Uh, John starts out the gospel by saying the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So the law was good. The problem is it was temporary. All the things of the Old Testament, the sacrifices, um, and, and all the things that we see, they were, they were temporary leading us to what we would finally experience in Christ. Think about this, even the feast days. You can run through all the feast days. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. Paul, a very astute rabbi, tells us this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, the first fruits of all those who would rise from the dead. And then we come to this, the finality, the Sabbath. Uh, if you read the epistles, you can find nine of the Ten Commandments. The one you won't find in the New Testament is the Sabbath. There is no command anymore to keep holy the Sabbath. Now, I think it's a wonderful principle. I think everybody in this room should have a day of rest or a time of rest. It recalibrates us. It's good for us. But there is no commandment. Paul would say, let no one judge you in regard to feast days or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, plural. Why? Because the reality is now centered in Jesus Christ. So here's what we understand. The day you came to Christ, the day I came to Christ, we laid all of our burdens at the cross. We laid all of our desires, all of our ambition. It was the end of ourselves, all of our sin. The end of, you know, Bob Gaglione Incorporated was at the cross. And there's where life began. It's where we experience this crazy thing called grace that we think we understand the Bible says for the ages to come, we're going to learn about his grace. So grace is now our fuel. Grace is what, what we live by, and it's because we've laid everything at the cross. There's no more striving. There's no more earning. So here's the drill. You know, Jesus tells this woman, look, if you drink from the water I give you, it's not going to be a well. It's going to be a spring, the Holy Spirit inside of you. You'll draw from the wells of salvation, and never-ending supply is the idea. So what it looks like in my life is, and we don't talk about this enough, look, I struggle just like you. I have good weeks, bad weeks, right? The idea, however, is I'm not going anywhere. So on a bad week, it's not like, geez, Jesus isn't working out for me. Let me try Buddha or Confucius or Hinduism or some New Age philosophy. No, I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm like David, right? David was a murderer, an adulterer. He was a bad dad. He had his shortcomings, but he's the man after God's own heart. Why? Because he never turned to an idol. In his ups and downs, he always looked to God. It's kind of like a marriage. You know, good weeks of marriage, bad weeks of marriage, I ain't going anywhere. That's the drill. And so Jesus is our rest because we've experienced grace, this unmerited favor. And what we're studying in John are these portraits of grace. Jesus encounters with real human beings. Last week we saw Nicodemus, and I think Nicodemus had to be first because it's my belief, it's not in the Bible, it's my belief, that religion might be the greatest obstacle anyone will ever have to knowing who Jesus really is. Because religion makes you think, I'm okay, you're okay, I've done all the right things. It's the single greatest barrier to eternal life and life in Jesus. To, today we get to someone we think needs Jesus, right? This woman at the well. Five husbands, the current guy's not hers. She comes to the well at noon. All the women come at 8, right? They come at 8 o'clock, take their veils off, they gossip, have a cup of coffee, check Instagram, right? Uh, they're in a male-dominated society. This is their time, right? She can't come. She's immoral. She comes at noon. 
She's the one we think Jesus needs, right? Probably has like smoker's voice, smoker's breath, right? Disheveled. Yeah, this is the woman that needs Jesus. And it's a wonderful, beautiful story, and people have preached on it time and time again. But there's one critical verse that unlocks the whole chapter. So when you go back and read it on your own, look at verse 4. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And you're saying, big deal. And I know you're an American, so you don't know geography. When you look at a map, the U.S. is this big, the rest of the world's this big. Uh, we don't even know where the states are, let alone the rest of the world. So Jesus needed to go through Samaria. What the heck's that mean? Well, it says he was weary, right? So Jesus is in the south in Judea. He's got to go to the Galilee, which is in the north. So, you know, Israel's like New Jersey. You go right up the turnpike, right? Go right through Trenton, right? You just go right up the chute. It's the fastest way. The lady, however, in verse 9 brings out the prejudice and the politics of the day, and every day had their prejudice and politics. She says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and, and she was putting it lightly. The hostility in that day, the Jewish hatred in that day for Samaritans was deep. It was racial. It was political. It was racial because at one time, all 12 tribes were Jewish. The 10 tribes in the north we're conquered by the Assyrians, great world power. The problem is, unlike other Jews of all time, they assimilated, intermarried with Samaritans or Assyrians and became Samaritans. Uh, the Jews have prided themselves wherever they've gone, the wandering Jew all over the world, they've kept their identity by never intermarrying. Uh, once this happened, they formed their own priesthood. They started to worship on Mount Gerizim. They wouldn't go to the temple anymore. And so the hatred cut deep. Uh, a Jew and a Samaritan would never have a meal, never go in each other's house. Jews thought it would be better to eat in your pig's trough than to ever share a meal with a Samaritan. They had no dealings with Samaritans. So the reason why John brings this out and no one else does tell this story is because if you were going from Judea to Galilee, you would take a circuitous route. In other words, you would go around Samaria, probably take about 10 or 11 hours longer. Now, we modern people would never do that, right? We would never avoid neighborhoods or avoid certain people. That's for people of antiquity, right? We wouldn't do that. We don't have prejudice or any of that anymore. Jesus needed to go through Samaria, and he needed to go through for reasons more than you think. And I'm going to give you three. There's probably 30, but I'll give you three. He needed to go through Samaria because there was a woman there who was keeping an appointment with destiny. Now, I will never get over this, how a God of the universe, keeping the worlds together with the word of his power, and seven billion people could have an appointment with one woman at a well. And I think this appointment came from eternity. Jesus needed to get to this well because there was an appointment there. Uh, the church world coined a term about 30 years ago called seekers. And the idea of the term was really good because on Sunday mornings we would use clunky language. Like we would call pe people believers and unbelievers, right? It's weird. You invite friends and then they're called unbelievers. It's just, it was a clunky situation. So somebody said, well, why don't we call everybody seekers? People that don't know Christ, we'll call them seekers. Because everybody's seeking something, right? It was really cool. In John 4, we're introduced to the real seeker, and it's God. Jesus came, I, I came to seek and save that which was lost. In Genesis, when the first man and woman disobeyed God and sinned, they did what we all do. They hide, right? 
you know, your kids are little, they do something wrong, they're in another room, they're quiet, you know something's wrong. They hid. They made fig leaves for themselves. And what do we hear God say? Adam, where art thou? God's not taking his belt off like, Adam, where are you? Adam, where art thou? This God of abundance, this God of relationship, broken. Adam, where are you? I think everybody loves Luke 15, has the story of the prodigal son. We love that story, right? Guy spends his father's money, riotous living, comes back. They put a ring on his finger and a coat on his back. It's beautiful. What prefaces that story in Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. A man who has 100 sheep loses one, goes out and finds one and leaves the 99. And a woman clears the whole house looking for one coin of her dowry. And the whole idea behind both of those parables is that something of great value is lost and there's a frantic search to find it. But by the time we get to the prodigal son, it's no longer a coin or a sheep that's lost. They're replaceable. It's now a lost son and a prodigal God who brings a famine into the land. That's God's search and rescue team. Brings him to his senses. And it's the only time in scripture we see God run. God runs to him. The angels in heaven rejoice, Jesus said. John has no parable. Some people think the whole book is a parable of the Father's heart. And yet there is a God who will keep an appointment in a well. There's a God who met me on a college campus. There's a God who will meet you and you. And, and God meets everyone. There's an appointment with destiny for every one of us. And how the God of the universe does this, I have no idea. But this woman is a type of many of us. Like Israel, her water pots were empty. She was weary. She needed new wine. Ken Geyer, who I've been reading for 30 years, he's one of the few writers that can turn words into pictures, the ear into an eye. He said, for 30 years, Jesus, this vintage from heaven was cellared in a carpenter shop in Nazareth. But now the time has come for the seal to be broken, the cork extracted, and the favorite bouquet of deity to fill the earth so that for a, a fleet, fleeting and festive moment, the world's parched lips might taste the kingdom of God. And who would believe this woman would be a partaker, this outcast? You know, Nicodemus is named. She has no name. He's on, he's on the highest rung morally and academically and religiously. She's on the lowest rung. They have nothing in common, but she's going to taste like he did of new wine. A.W. Pink said, the whole machinery of grace was set in motion in the direction of one poor sinner that she might be restored to her Savior and to her God. And can I show you how Jesus begins in verse 7? He's sitting at a well. There's no one there. And he says, woman, can you give me a drink? Or woman, give me a drink. And people look at that and they say, well, that was a male chauvinist society. He's demanding, she's a doormat, give me a drink. Listen, woman, give me a drink. Look, can I show you the dignity here? This is a woman who's an outcast, who's immoral, who has no standing. And yet Jesus says, you have something to give. Everybody has something to give. Give me this drink of water. He's, he's, he's standing up for her dignity that we all matter. The people matter to God. Give me a drink. Uh, so we're running a missions trip to Guatemala. And once we select a team, we'll have team meetings. And the first team meeting we do 
a cultural sensitivity kind of walk through people through that. And the reason we have to do it is because when it comes to these type of trips to the developing world, Americans to think that they're generally descending from on high, right? Like we're going to come in, we got all the money, the power, we're going we're gonna to make things right, we're going to show you guys the way it works, like the Calvary's coming, get it, the Calvary, Calvary. And uh, so we do a cultural sensitivity training saying, look, like here's, you know, you don't go the first day with your Philly shirt and, you know, all this stuff. And, and, and we walk everybody through that. You know what we hear from 90% of people that go on a mission trip the first time? They all tell this story. Gosh, I thought I was going on the trip to help somebody else. You know the rest, right? They helped me more than I helped them. Because everybody has something to give. And Jesus brings out this dignity in this woman. And she's startled. Uh, how is it that you, a Jew, you're a man, you're a, you're a Jew, this makes no sense. How are you even speaking to me? How, 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 how? See, the how questions happen when grace is involved. See, in religion, we never ask how. They just give us the hundred rules. We never ask questions and we just try and do them. When grace comes in, it's, how's this happening? Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Uh, how? Do I enter my mother's womb a second time? Mary, you're going to have the Son of God. How can this be? I've never known a man. How, 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 how? Grace freezes us in our tracks. You ever tell someone the gospel? Oh, here's the good news. There's nothing you have to do. How? It's always the first question. Jesus said in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus said, look, the water that you're drawing, you're going to thirst again. I'm going to give you a spring. I'm going to give you a water supply that will never end. See, he's loading her up with grace. Give me this water. That's what grace does. But then he gets her with truth, grace and truth. He said, great, call your husband. Uh, I don't have a husband. I know, you've had five. And the guy you're with now is not your own. Oof, how many of us would have said that? Still upholding her dignity. He's not condemning her. I read through this, right? He, he, never, he never tells her her sin. He never gives her a plan of salvation. He never prays. He never calls her repentance. He doesn't do all the things we say he should do. He just says, go call your husband. And then you've had five husbands, the guy you're with. What he's doing is he's taking her mask off. And we all have masks, right? Um, she goes, sir, you're a prophet. You know, first he's sir, now he's a prophet. You're a prophet. Oh, and by the way, here's the spiritual conundrum of our day. We, you know, we Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. You're Jews, you guys worship in the temple. Who's right? You ever notice people turn real religious when you get around? <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I would go around guys that never went to church, never read the Bible. And as soon as I popped in, they were like, hey, I was at church today and, you know, this happened and that happened. And I read the Bible the other day. Like everybody would just get real religious when I came around. And it's kind of a front. It's a mask, right? She's diverting to a religious topic. 
And Jesus goes with it. He's saying the Jews are right. He doesn't say they're better. He just said they're right. Jerusalem's the place. And there's coming a time where you're going to worship God in spirit and truth. But he has her on a path to self-discovery. She's beginning to see things about herself and who Jesus is. And he's got her on the same path as Nicodemus. Truth has to go 18 inches from the head to the heart. She's in process, I like to call it. Now, we generally don't like process, right? Like we bring somebody to Sizzling Summer and if they don't go up and get in the tank, we're like miffed. Like what's wrong with you? You heard the gospel, get in that tank, right? <laughs> now, look, this happened pretty quick too. But sometimes it's longer, right? Some plant, some water, God gives the increase. When I became a Christian and got married, we would go to our relatives and it was World War III at every holiday. Because somebody would bring up religion and we preached to them and everybody would get offended. That went on for years. Then we said nothing for years. Then they start asking us. Because life kind of beats you up and they've analyzed you for a while. And, you know, but, but there's always a process, right? People, people need value. They need dignity. I look at Jesus here and it's a clinic. Before I move on, I just want to share one thing because I've never heard anybody ever talk about this. Do you ever wonder why the woman was at that place? Do you ever wonder how you can get to a place where you've had five failed marriages and you're currently in a relationship where the guy can't commit? You ever wonder how you get there? The way you get there is because of desire. I want you to think this through. God built into us desire. It's a good thing. God designed desire to be an invitation by God to enter into the beauty of God, if you can, if you can understand that, right? It's, it's somewhat deep. So every gift of God is an invitation into his beauty. So marriage and sex and love is a wonderful gift that should always take you to the gift giver. So when you experience that at its greatest level, it should always give you a greater wonder of the goodness of God when you have a great meal, the same thing, right? So all brokenness is misplaced desire. Okay? Uh, addiction is misplaced desire. It's drinking from the same well. See, every addict is going back to the same well thinking he's going to get something there and he, there's just a continual thirst. Now, for the people who claim they're not addicts and never had five husbands, there are other wells of desire. Wells of status and money and fame and standing. The idea is we've all drunk from these wells. And all like the woman have entered into desires that have left us thirsty. Jesus has the invitation into a well where you'll never ever thirst again. Where there will be a spring into eternal life. This is what he's drawing the woman into. Jesus needed to go through Samaria, number one. Because this woman had an appointment with destiny and every one of us, every human being has an appointment with destiny. Everyone. And the God of heaven will meet you there. And I'm going to say it's going to happen on an ordinary day. For her, she had gone to this well a thousand times. For me, I had walked that college campus a thousand times. Moses, he was a shepherd. A one day, a bush is burning. For Abraham, one day, God said, you're going to leave her of the Chaldees. Mainly, God works through ordinary things. But there's a second reason why he needed to go through Samaria, and this one's going to get us at a different level. Jesus needed to go through Samaria to teach you and me 
what a world of prejudice looks like and how we can confront it. Now track with me with this. I've already laid out the situation of the day. When God created man, the preponderance of evidence is that we were made equal. Equal value, different functions. So men and women in the garden were meant to walk side by side. Equal value, different functions. We learn in Galatians there's no bond or free, there's no Jew or Gentile, right? There's no male or female. We are all one in Christ. We were designed uniquely, but we're all one. So in a way, prejudice makes absolutely no sense. I'll give you an illustration. So when I was a kid, and you go back to school, and I'm probably still scarred by this, I realize this. Uh, every year we would get crayons. And this is back when there were five and tens. And um, so I always got the eight crayons in a box, and on a good year there were 16, right? But I would always look at the kids, and there was only a couple, and I would always look at the five and ten at the 64 box. <laughs> Anybody remember that? I mean, that was like a Mercedes. It was untouchable. Uh, the 32 was amazing, but the 64 had a sharpener in the back. <laughs> and only the rich kids got 64. Now, I know today you go to Costco, you probably get 100 for $5, right? doesn't matter. But can you imagine getting eight crayons or 16 and saying, I don't like this crayon, I don't like that crayon, throwing half the box out because they were different colors? No, you would... You would take those colors, you use every one, right? So prejudice on some level makes absolutely no sense. No sense. And yet we know in the garden, most of what makes no sense is because Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to know good from evil. And so now the world is turned upside down and we have a world of prejudice. And when you look at a world of prejudice, Jesus shows us the heart of God saying, I need to go through Samaria. And here's the learning. There's two learnings. Number one, this will never be made right without Jesus. The new community is no slave or free, no, no, no Greek or Jew. There's no male or female. Only in the new community will this be solved. It will never be solved by the dominant community. You'll never legislate this. The second thing is you'll never grow in this area to realize we're all prejudiced, all of us. So here's how I learned. There's a funny thing about growing up. When you get educated and you get into the bigger world, you begin to see things in a different way. So right after high school, I got mono. I lost 30 pounds. Uh, almost had to have my spleen taken out. And so uh, the college I was going to go to, they hid me away in a prep school. We had the number two prep school in the country. I roomed with two black guys. And after we got to know each other and all barriers were broken down, we stayed up late one night and we talked about how we were raised. Now, um, I told them my dad was raised in a mixed neighborhood of black and white, so he didn't have like Archie Bunker prejudice, but there was prejudice, right? There's things we heard at the dinner table. Then they shared with me, there's things they heard at the dinner table. They were actually told, I don't know if this is true of everyone, they were told that everything that was wrong with their life was because of white people. And so, wow, what a learning. And we spent the rest of the year trying to break those walls down. Uh, another thing that happened to me later is uh, I was up in Queens, New York, Pete Scazzaro's church. He wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, Pete has 30 
ethnic groups in his church. Which everybody thinks, wow, that's great. That's the way it was meant to be. That's a slice of heaven. He's like, Bob, you wouldn't believe how this works. He said, let's take the Asians, for example. I never knew this, but they have like a pecking order. Like, like Filipinos and Japanese and Chinese. Like there is actually a rank order and there's prejudice that runs up and down that ladder. I'm like, oh my gosh. Then I'm in Nairobi, Kenya. Kenya is 99.7% black. And I'm with Pastor Oscar in the car, and I see a sign in the bank that says 10% interest on savings books. And I'm like, Oscar, what stops me from taking my savings, opening an account here in Kenya, and getting 10%? So you guys think all those trips are spiritual. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on. I'm only joking. But I was interested. Uh, I said, Pastor Oscar, what stops me from putting all my money in here and getting 10%? He said, uh, Civil War? I'm like, Civil War, everybody's black. He goes, Bob, and he, there's this tribe, and that tribe, and this tribe. And I'm like, this makes no sense. And prejudice doesn't make any sense. And this is why Jesus went through Samaria. 15 years ago, we decided we would do 50% of all missions local. And we had a weekend called Compassion Weekend where we would come to the church, there's about 300 of us, and then we went out to 18 different venues, Camden, Chester, Kensington, um, places in Delaware, uh, parts of Coatesville, uh, different places. And the reason we did this is we wanted to take people to these places. We, would, we weren't sure they would go on their own. And though we would have things to do there, we wanted God to open up their hearts to what was going on in these communities that looked far different from the ones they came from. I don't know if you realize this, but one of our partners is Rock Ministries. It's literally two blocks from the original Rocky House. So whenever we take people there, we always go to the, take pictures at the Rocky House. It's the number one drug corner in Philadelphia. It might be the number one drug corner in the United States. Do you know Kensington is 11 miles from the main line? 11 miles. On the main line, the ethos is, for your kids, Ivy League or die. In Kensington, you're lucky if you can get out of high school. How many mainliners have ever driven through Kensington? And what Jesus teaches us here, and this is my prayer, and I try to live by, that as much depends on me I want to be the first person to walk through a racial, socioeconomic divide. Had a Palestinian guy come up to me years ago. Pastor Bob, I've been here for a while. I know you love Israel, but I've never heard a Pal Palestinians talked about in a positive light like you do. And then he knew the secret sauce. He said, uh, you're a Sixers fan. You like to go to games? And I'm like, now you got my love language. <laughs> and he and I went to five or six Sixers games for the next eight years. Talked about Palestinians and Israels and broke down those walls. What amazes me about this text, and I never saw this before, the guys come back in verse 32, and they said, Jesus, eat. He said, I have food to eat which you do not know. They said, has anyone brought this guy something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. 
Now, whenever somebody quotes that, they're like, fire up God of the city and tell everybody, look around, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Can I ask you a simple question? When Jesus told them to look at the fields, where were they? Class, they were in Samaria. Oh my gosh, you know what he was telling them? You guys want to harvest? Look at the fields of Samaria. Look at people that don't look like you. In fact, look at the people you don't even like. He wasn't saying go to New York City, it'll be a blast, we'll church plant, we'll have a great time. No, no, that's not what he was saying. Jesus said you go to the most outcast places on earth and you'll see God move. 20 years ago, Seattle, San Francisco, the most unchurched cities in America. Guys went out there, you know their names now, you didn't then. Planted churches, God's given them the increase. Jesus said, the gates of hell will never stop us. When he gave the Great Commission, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Judea, yeah, 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 yeah. Samaria, uh, we might have to go to the remedial class. <laughs> and then, they didn't even like this. The, the ends of the earth, those were Gentiles. Jesus needed to go to Samaria because if he's the person he said he was, there would be no boundaries and borders. All people would matter. People matter to God and they need to matter to us. The final reason that Jesus needed to go through Samaria was to teach us about grace. You say, Pastor Bob, I understand grace. You talk about it all the time. Yeah, but there's a little more to grace here than you think. To an unnamed woman, he has the greatest discourse on worship he had with anybody. God is spirit. We have to worship in spirit and truth. I mean, this is the conversation you would think he would have had with Nicodemus, the religious elite. He saves it for a woman at the well. You know, at the end, he, he tells her, um, she says, I know that Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. He said to her, I am. We haven't heard that since the burning bush where God said, I am. I mean, he basically told this woman, I'm God. First person he ever told it to. First person he tells about worship. Philip Yancey says, we can never sink so far that God's grace will not reach us. At the same time, grace doesn't leave us where we are. It doesn't leave us where we are. For those of you who have read the story a hundred times, she goes into the village, she, told, she, tell, she leaves the water pot behind, that's a sign of a new life. She runs into the village, tell, uh, here's a man who told me everything I knew. John tells us down around verse 39, when the Samaritans um, had come to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And many who believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, listen, the Savior of the world, Samaria. Samaria in totality says, we get it. This is the Savior of the world. How's that for an evangelistic program? One woman one well, God's grace. That's all it takes. And that's been multiplied over and over again. Research has proven out 
90% of evangelism in the church is done by those five years and less. Why? Because God's put a rocket on their back. And they're so full of zeal and joy and belief. This woman experienced what the Pharisees could never grasp, what the Sabbath was all about. She finally found rest. Not rest from the trials and tribulations of life. I don't know what happened to her husband. I don't know what happened to the relationship. But I know this. There was no more striving within her soul. She had found rest because she found the God that was always relentlessly looking for her.